This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. On the show today, we're going to Bali. Well, we'll talk about flying to Bali or Paris and other exotic and romantic destinations. A new agreement reached in Montreal earlier this year will reduce the carbon pollution from international plane flights. The aviation industry and 191 countries are on board, and airlines hailed the voluntary deal as historic. The travel pact is separate from the Paris Climate Accord, in which nearly 200 countries agreed last year to go on a carbon diet of their choosing. But Donald Trump's pledge to exit the Paris Agreement is raising questions about the aviation deal. What happens if the United States doesn't clear it for takeoff? Will airplane manufacturers and airlines set their own flight path? This program is underwritten by our friends at the Climate Works Foundation, and over the next hour, we will talk about lighter airplanes, aircraft powered by batteries and the sun, cleaner fuels, and what San Francisco International Airport is doing to cut its greenhouse gas emissions. We might even learn what really happens to the paper or glass you put in the trash can at SFO that says, contents recycled off-site. <laughs> Seriously? Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four people working to clean up your summer trip to Disney World. Aaron Cook is Sustainability Director at San Francisco International Airport. Jim Macias is President and CEO of Fulcrum Bioenergy, a startup based in the East Bay that is backed by BP and United Airlines. Sean Newsom is Director of Environmental Strategy at Boeing Commercial Airlines. And I don't think any relation to uh, our former mayor. Uh, Annie Petsonk is international counsel at the Environmental Defense Fund and was deeply involved in the new travel agreement. Please welcome them to Climate One. Annie Petsock, you've been involved in this deal for years, this aviation deal. Can Donald Trump dump this aviation deal? The important thing about the aviation agreement that was reached in Montreal a couple of weeks ago is that it's got broad support from across the industry and it's got strong support from civil society organizations. Now, not every environmental group thinks it's perfect. It's not perfect by any means. But it, as a first step, it's quite an important one. And it relies on uh, giving airlines the flexibility to determine how they're going to reduce emissions. They can do it by flying cleaner aircraft. They can do it by working with governments to get air traffic control to be better so that planes can fly uh, takeoffs and landings more efficiently and they don't have to spend so much time circling. They can use alternative fuels if those fuels actually reduce emissions. And they can offset their emissions by investing in emission reduction opportunities within the aviation sector, like at San Francisco Airport, or outside the aviation sector. With that flexibility in mind, we're hopeful that the new administration coming in will embrace this agreement and not reject it. Sean Newsom, uh, in 2008, the federal government bailed out 
the auto industry, particularly GM and, and Fiat. And then uh, as part of that, there was an agreement to increase CAFE fuel efficiency standards. A couple days after President uh, Trump was elected, the auto industry came out and said, actually, we want to renegotiate that. That thing we committed to, we want to ease off those fuel efficiency standards that we committed to. What is the possibility that the airline industry will do the same thing and say, well, that thing we agreed to, we changed our mind. We want you to loosen it a little bit. Well, you know, the, the difference for us is that we actually um, were seeking having a fuel efficiency standard for aviation. We didn't have one for, for, for our industry. There were for the automotive industries, although in individual countries, not in an international sectoral basis. So we actually sought this. It's something that we supported. It's something that we still support. And the change in the administration isn't going to change our industry stance towards um, wanting to have that in place. We reached an agreement through the same United Nations body that agreed on the market-based measures. It's one of the pillars of our environmental strategy. And as far as we're concerned, we're planning to move forward on implementing that standard. Jim Macias, uh, you run a biofuel company. You've received money from the federal government. You're getting questions. What's this mean for our business? Yeah, I don't... I. I don't, I don't see that it's going to be much of an impact, especially over the longer term. There may be some short-term impacts, but not over the longer term. You asked about the airline's commitment. In our, in our business, we produce renewable fuels by converting to garbage. We can produce diesel or jet, same cost, very easily. We're focused on jet for a simple reason. Diesel's a better market. It's, you can sell it at a lower cost. You don't have all the safety issues that you do with aviation fuels, you don't have all the certification and, and, and documentation. We're focused on the aviation industry because the aviation industry is absolutely determined to, to get to sustainability in their business. Uh, have had an opportunity to meet with and in discussions with a lot of airlines, the CEOs and senior executives. They are absolutely convinced that it's a critical business function to their success of the future to be competitive in a very competitive Environment to have a sustainable uh, business with a lower carbon input. This is beyond any government input. This is beyond regulations. They see it's a matter of survival, and they're willing to get involved and help companies like ourselves get there faster with the large volumes that they need to fly. So the Trump administration, I'm not sure what they're gonna what they're gonna do. He's made it known that a lot of his positions during the campaign were opening positions, and what's gonna actually happen. But I think this is clear. What's happening in the aviation, not just the civilian, but the military. The military is also convinced they need alternative fuels uh, uh, for, their, for, their, for their fleets and their, and, and their operations. So it's, it's, it's bigger than any single president or, or, or administration. Aaron Cook, how about SFO? Uh, you're not, you know, you're kind of a, a regional entity there, an island of sorts. How would a change in policy in Washington affect what you're doing at San Francisco International? We're a city department, uh, so a city, the city of San Francisco, we're a department within that. Um, and we are really home to um, a very sophisticated public that we're serving as part of their passenger journey. So about 70 million, um, actually, Bay Area residents are flying on an annual basis. 51 million are coming through our doors. 
Um, and we recognize that they have a strong environmental ethic as well as affinity towards technology that is helping contribute to um, the betterment, really, of our planet and also their travel experience. And so um, from really home to airport gate, um, we're making sure that um, our, and our city is wildly supportive of this um, through a variety of different policy as well as market-based mechanisms, making sure that they're taking AirTrain and or BART to get to our um, terminals, which are all um, very low-carbon transportation sources. Um, they're actually being able to access concessions or services at our airport um, which are um, within um, a LEED portfolio. So 24 of our buildings are actually LEED certified or registered to become LEED Gold, which is a green building standard set by the city of San Francisco, which is the most progressive really in the nation. Um, we've done a lot actually also on airside, so making sure that we're providing um, PC air, so our airplanes that are coming in for clean uh, to clean as they're um, waiting for takeoff can actually not idle. They can plug into our system, um, which is actually all provided through 100% GHG free electricity. So um, that's a program that's available to SFO. We're about 40% of the load of the PUC. And so um, we really think that um, as long as our city continues to lead, which we anticipate that it certainly will, um, we'll be in really good shape. Sean Newsom, uh, air, the aviation industry is growing. There's middle classes in China, India that are starting to travel internationally. Huge growth. So paint for us the picture, uh, the growth trajectory for airlines and, and airline travel. That really sets the stage for this agreement. Yeah. So, you know, overall, um, air traffic around the world has grown at about 5% per year for the last 25 years at least. Um, but where that growth occurs keeps shifting. And so looking forward over the next 20 years or so, we'd expect that the greater amount of the growth is in the developing in the countries, in the emerging countries, the emerging economies. China, obviously, a big source of that. But the greater Asia region, um, we expect to have the, the highest growth rates. Um, we expect air traffic, air travel to continue to grow in the U.S. and Europe and the, and the regions and flights between those, those regions, but at a much lower rate. Um, the, the, the really rapid growth is incurring in China and the, those developing nations. And Annie Pensonk, if that growth continued and there was no deal uh, to cap greenhouse gas emissions, how big of uh, aviation is what, 1% to 2% now of global emissions? Where would it be without if they didn't bend the curve down and have this deal? The growth in this industry, it, its forecast is so great that it could prevent the world from achieving the Paris goals of uh, stabilizing the increase in temperature at no more than one to two degrees, one and a half to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. Just to put that in context, I think, and Sean, correct me, please, if I'm wrong here, but I think that uh, Boeing forecasts about 30,000 new large aircraft taken to the skies in the coming decades. That's a lot of planes uh, producing a lot of greenhouse gas emissions uh, and uh, adding to the blanket of warming uh, uh, chemicals in our atmosphere. Yeah, so, so even though air traffic grows at about 5% a year, CO2 emissions grow at less than 2% a year. That's because we're continually investing in new technology airplanes. We're getting more and more fuel efficient. Each air, new generation of airplane we produce is 15 to 20% more fuel efficient than the one it replaces. So I flew here on a 737 Next Generation that first entered service in 1997, um, later this year, sorry, next year, not in 2017 yet, we'll deliver the next generation of the airplane, the 737 MAX, 
that will be approximately 20% more fuel efficient than the original 737 that we delivered 20 years ago. We're continuing to invest in technology. We're continuing to make our airplanes more fuel efficient. That's what makes for the difference between that 5% industry growth rate and that less than 2% emissions growth rate. Is the industry growing? Yes. Is it growing at the same rate as the traffic? No, not from a CO2 emission standpoint. And you're doing that because fuel costs are, what, 30 40% of running an airline versus uh, putting gasoline in a car is, is a small percentage of running our personal cars. So there's more of a business incentive to do this on airlines. Government's not making you do it. Absolutely. The, the primary business driver for aviation is, is fuel efficiency. That's, fuel is their number one cost component. So there's a natural incentive to invest in fuel-efficient technology. Um, you know, contrast cars and airplanes. The thing that makes you buy a new airplane is the fuel efficiency of that airplane. The thing that makes you buy a new car, I don't know, it's up to you, but um, (laughs) generally speaking, I don't think fuel efficiency for the population as a whole, for the mainstream product, is fuel efficiency. So tell us some of the new technologies, whether it's uh, batteries, uh, biofuels, uh, solar plane recently flew around the world. Can we dream of flying in a solar plane in our lifetime? Oh, we can dream about it. Um, <laughs> probably not happening real soon, at least not on a commercial airline basis. Um, I, I fully expect that somebody will build a, an individual general aviation type airplane that could be solar powered, electric powered, and certainly you know, the, the relatively near future. But from a commercial airplane basis, to get a 737-size airplane or a 787-size airplane um, to fly on solar power and electric power, that's, that's quite a ways off. So we've turned to sustainable aviation fuels, biofuels, as being what we think the best means to significantly, substantially reduce the CO2 emissions footprint of, of airplanes. Jim Macias, tell us where you're getting your fuel from. There's all sorts of uh, companies out there uh, flying, uh, providing fuel to uh, airplanes. Some of it comes from wood. Some of it comes from corn. Some of it comes from algae and goopy, gooey stuff in the ocean. What, what, are, you, what are you burning? Well, we don't burn. Um, <laughs> burning is dirty and sends emissions into the, into the atmosphere. We're closed-loop gasification. Our feedstock is municipal solid waste or garbage. It's all the garbage that uh, everyone here throws away in their black bin. It's not the recycling stuff. That goes on to recycling. It's the stuff that is not curbside recycled. About 50% of that garbage that's thrown in the black bin is organic. It's rich in carbon and hydrogen. And we put it through a process to separate out all the non-organics, all the rocks, dirt, grit, glass, metals. That goes to recycling surplus plastic goes to recycling. The rest we put into a feedstock. And then in the closed-loop gasification, you just take those complex molecules, break them up into simple molecules, and then reconvert them into a fuel product. It's the same process that the Earth used in fossil fuels. It's, it's down in the ground where there's no oxygen, but it's high pressure and temperature. Converted all those fossil uh, uh, molecules into oil and natural gas and other products. We're doing the same thing, but in a controlled environment instead of millions of years. We do it in a matter of seconds. If you're just joining us, uh, Jim Macias is CEO of Fulcrum Bioenergy. Our other guests today at Climate One are Aaron Cook, Sustainability Director at SFO, Sean Newsom, Director of Environmental Strategy at Boeing, and Annie Petsonk with the International, International Council at the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we had, Sean knew some low oil prices right now. Uh, does that affect this? It's like oil prices. There's a, uh, a oversupply really in global oil markets the last couple of years. Does that take some of the pressure off for this? 
I don't think so. I, I, and I say that for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Jim mentioned this earlier, but the imperative to reduce our CO2 emissions footprint goes beyond the price of oil. Um, we, we recognize that this, this is a, an imperative for our industry. We've made strong commitments for improving our environmental performance overall. That's why we were so supportive of the, um, the market-based measures, the carbon offset um, agreement that, that Annie mentioned in the United Nations Agency. Um, that's why we're investing as an industry in biofuels, like with Jim's company. Um, we, we see that that's something that is necessary for the long-term of our industry, the long-term good of, of aviation. Um, so we're, we're continuing to pursue that. The, the price of oil as, as a manufacturer is kind of a, a balance. Um, for, for airlines to buy new airplanes from us, those new, more efficient airplanes, they have to be um, healthy financially. Generally, they're more healthy financially when the price of oil is low. When the price of oil is high, they have an extra high motivation to get more fuel-efficient airplanes, but maybe they're not as profitable. So overall, it kind of works out to be a balance, um, and there isn't really one state that's particularly advantageous to the market for new airplanes or to the overall direction of our industry. And over the course, uh, lifetime of an airline, they'll be high and low probably. Absolutely. Uh, Jim Macias, you mentioned uh, the military. The U.S. Navy's done a lot of work. Their great green fleet. Uh, tell us about what they're doing to, to advance the technology and start to create some demand for companies like yours. And there's others around California and Colorado and really around the country. Well, they're very active in, in using the purchasing power of the Pentagon to help, uh, help move the industry forward. They're, they're, their planning horizon starts at 20 years out. They're very concerned about... Uh, the uh, sustainability of fossil fuels for their uh, operations. They have invested in us. They've invested $70 million in our plan to help accelerate our plan and get it producing fuel for their operations. It comes out of the National Strategic Defense Fund. They, they see it as a, as a strategic initiative. Uh, 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 the Navy uh, 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 consumes a vast amount of fuel for their fleet. And, and I don't remember the number that they, they say, but it's like 60%, 70% of the, of the fuel goes to keeping the shipping lanes open just to keep the flow of oil flowing, flowing globally. So it is a very important strategic initiative. Now, they cannot purchase fuel uh, at higher than market prices. Um, they, they, they ran the Great Green Fleet operations. I was with them uh, this past summer out in the Pacific where they... Where they, where they did uh, RIMPAC with uh, 20 other nations running on, on biofuels on the ships because they can purchase fuel at market prices. Uh, uh, diesel for ships can be competitive, but no plane flew because, because aviation fuel is not competitive yet. And that's why they're pushing us real hard to get uh, large volumes of fuel out into the marketplace so they can start, start using it. And we have to be competitive. Even at a low oil prices like today, you still have to be competitive uh, in the marketplace. The airline industry is so competitive. No airline can afford to pay even a fraction of a cent more for fuel than their competitors do. So okay. you have to produce the alternative fuel at competitive prices. Any Petsonk, another highly competitive industry is shipping. Uh, if we look at the story of uh, regulation of greenhouse gases, it started with big plants and factories, things that were regulated and they couldn't be moved, and then it went to cars, and now we're getting to mobile sources, planes and ships. So tell us about ships, and when will they be brought into something similar to what the airlines have just done? How did we get started with planes and ships? Well, first, uh, when the parties to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Rio Treaty that was done back in 1992, sat down to figure out 
uh, which emissions the different countries needed to reduce, the countries couldn't reach agreement on whose responsibility it is to cut the emissions of a flight from one country to another. Should that flight's emissions be the responsibility of the country of departure? Should it be your responsibility if you happen to be flying on the flight? Whose responsibility is it? They couldn't agree. And they kicked the issue around for many years until finally they reached the agreement a couple of weeks ago in Montreal uh, addressing whose emissions they are and capping and reducing those emissions. Our hope is that that agreement can serve as a kind of model for shipping where you have the same question. Whose responsibility is it to deal with the pollution of a ship that's going from one country to another? Shipping tends to, be, uh, tends to use a lot dirtier fuels than aviation does, and ships are not nearly as much in the public eye as aviation is. So shipping is going to be a tougher challenge. The shipping countries uh, met in London a couple weeks ago after the aviation deal was reached, Instead of saying, hey, that aviation deal will be a model for us, they said, well, let's think about this until 2023, and then maybe we'll develop a plan of action. From my perspective, that's not a good first step. And so one of the things that I and my colleagues will be turning our attention to is not just getting the aviation deal implemented, but going after shipping as well. Sean Newsom, how important is it that what customers, flyers, uh, kind of uh, pressuring or saying to airlines that uh, their carbon impact is, is uh, they touch consumers in a way that shippers don't. We, we all buy stuff that comes on a car- cargo container from China, but we never see that ship or have an interaction with it. But we, a lot of people, not all Americans, sit in an airplane mm-hmm. and think about the carbon impact of that and have an interaction with that airline. How important is that customer touch? Well, our... Our airline customers and, and ourselves as manufacturers, we're, we're very aware of, of what the, the public, I shouldn't say very aware, we're very concerned about what the, the public thinks about the, the environmental footprint. We are aware of, we think we're aware of what the public thinks, but we you never really know. Um, our, our customers, our airline customers are a little more in touch with the direct flying public because they're, they're our direct customers. Um, they pay attention. They do surveys of, of their customer base to, to understand what their, their thinking is, what their requirements are, and they listen. I was on a flight a few years ago on Virgin Airlines going to New York to a climate conference, and I love flying on Virgin. I wish more airlines were like that. Uh, and you have a little screen, order a sandwich, a drink, and oh, carbon offset. It's like, yeah, click that, right? And then the flight attendant comes and says, here's your drink, here's your sandwich, but I can't find that carbon offset. And she's looking in her basket and her thing. They're like, it's like, no, don't worry. It's like this thing that I put some money at to make myself feel better. It's not an actual product in your bag. Um, but Annie Petsonk, a lot of people are suspicious about carbon offsets, whether they really do anything or it's just making me feel better and throwing some money at a problem so I feel better, but it doesn't really reduce carbon. Is that fair? The big challenge in the aviation agreement is to make sure that the carbon offsets and the biofuels that airlines use to meet their targets uh, result in real reductions. And so for the offsets, the agreement provides that countries will have to obey very strict standards for proving that the offsets are real. And I'm part of a technical committee that is working over the next roughly 12 months. Uh, Sean is also involved in this uh, to make sure that the standards 
for evaluating those offsets or transparent, that the public has an opportunity to see what programs are applying to be used by airlines as uh, carbon offset programs, and the public has an opportunity to comment on them, and also that you can see the cost of them transparently in your air ticket. Last time I flew to Europe, I was very surprised to see that uh, on a roughly $1,200 ticket, $600 was for something called international surcharge. What is that? (laughs) Take a look next time you fly. We want to be sure that the uh, airlines are required to to be transparent with the public. How much does it cost them to procure these carbon offsets and to make sure that that's the cost that's reflected on your ticket? With regard to biofuels, there are also major questions that the environmental community has. If you get your biofuel by chopping down a rainforest in order to grow a biofuel crop, you're actually making the climate problem worse. And so we're working to make sure that there are very strong standards for measuring the life cycle emissions of these alternative fuels in comparison to fossil fuels. Aaron Cook, uh, there used to be kiosks at SFO to, to do uh, offsets, uh, cool thing. They went away. So do you use offsets at San Francisco Airport to uh, offset some of the emissions that come out of there? We're actually really committed to making sure we're mitigating and offsetting our emissions through our own operational portfolio first. So um, part of that is an allegiance and alignment with the airport carbon um, accreditation program. Um, It has basically four stages or four levels of carbon disclosure and offset or mitigation. Um, SFO is one of two airports in North America that's achieved a level three, which is a carbon or um, climate mitigation. So our, our emissions as an airport are about 26 million tons. Sorry, 26,000 tons. Oh my goodness. Yes. 26,000 tons. Sorry. That's a very scary number. 26 million. Um, and that's for our scope one and two emissions. So our direct and indirect, um, emissions that does not include aviation nor actually travel through other transportation partners. So when you add in our aviation services, it adds it or increases it to 1.6 million. So just our campus, and that's using, you know, 450 gigawatt hours of energy a year, which are all the majority of which are our GHG free, which I, mis- I mentioned earlier, um, it's that 26,000 tons that we're working on offsetting and mitigating initially. And we have a, a basically a strategic plan, a five-year plan to help us get to carbon neutrality, zero net energy, um, and zero waste that will help mitigate that further. Um, we And I think there's alignment in the industry that we want to do that. We want to focus on our operational portfolio first before we buy or procure offsets, which gets you actually to that stage four of carbon accreditation, which is carbon neutrality, um, but we're not playing in the offset market just yet. We want to really work on getting our house in order and reducing our footprint initially. Speaking about getting your house in order, there's two parts to the climate challenge. One is kind of reducing carbon pollution. The other is getting ready for climate change that's already happening baked into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gets to the runways at SFO, uh, projections for them to be underwater, for seas to rise at some point. What are you doing to keep them dry and safe? Um, so SFO is obviously from a business continuity and a public health perspective, very committed to climate change. 
obviously the mitigation work that we're doing, including the hopeful addition of biofuels, which reduces low sulfur, sulfur fuels on our airfield, creates a better workforce and a better environment for our workers. We have 35,000 workers at SFO on a daily basis, a majority of which are actually out in our airfield. Um, we also want to make sure they're not underwater. And so um, we're part of a variety of different working groups. The mayor has a sea level rise task force. Um, we're part of regional initiatives that are focusing on adaptation and resilience, recognizing that we're really the headwaters to the majority of communities that are located in San Mateo County. And so um, we have invested in additional earthen berms, um, actually elevating the level of our seawalls. About two-thirds of our eight-mile shoreline are already reinforced and protected. Um, we're, but we're about to embark on a $58 million um, uh, we're calling it an adaptation resilience planning exercise, essentially, um, to be able to build additional infrastructure and understand what additional me- mitigations are required to ensure the longevity of our airport. Aaron Cook is Director of Sustainability at San Francisco International Airport. We're talking about flying and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. Uh, brief questions, brief answers. Uh, this one's true or false for Sean Newsom. Uh, Big oil companies are not great innovators. True or false? <laughs> it has to be true or false. <laughs> um, big oil companies are not the only innovators. Um, Annie Petsonk, uh, true or false? Trump Force One is exempt from the International <laughs> Aviation Climate Agreement. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> It applies only to commercial flights. So all private planes are exempt. So not yeah. private planes, but military and state uh, uh, and state aircraft are, are exempt. Okay, uh, that's not to well, say they can't do it voluntarily. <laughs> Trump, for, yeah. Trump Force One is now a state aircraft. Okay, um, um, Aaron Cook, true or false? Due to rising seas, one day SFO will add boat docks near its aircraft gates. We already have some. True. Boat docks? <laughs> uh, it depends how close. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dep- the Coast yeah. Guard is not far yes, from your no, runways. Yeah. Um, Jim Macias, true or false? Carbon offsets are sometimes fishy. Um, it, can be, it can be true. Annie Petsonk, true or false? The deal cutting airline carbon emissions is an example of slick greenwashing. False. Uh, Sean Newsom, true or false? Boeing's going to make plane loads of money under President Trump. <laughs> um, I expect our business to be to continue as it is under Trump. <laughs> Jim Macias, um, true or false? Oil companies won't get serious about renewable fuels until they are as profitable as fossil fuels. Um, true, but I think that's already. It's already happening. Okay, we can come back to the profitability of that. Um, Annie Petsonk, true or false? The Environmental Defense Fund will raise more money with Donald Trump in the White House than they did with Barack Obama in the White House. (laughs) Out of my league, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think that uh, environmental groups raised a lot of money with George Bush in the White House, and after he left, donations went down. Aaron Cook, true or false, the apocalypse is near. <laughs> false. <laughs> it wasn't very convincing. False was For my baby. <laughs> Sean Newsom, yes or no, uh, fuels from algae will save our bacon. 
False. Uh, last question for Sean Newsom. Uh, airline consolidation has created airport monopolies and raised ticket prices. Yes or no? There used to be nine major carriers in the United States. Now there's four. Um, I'd say false. Okay. An AP study earlier this last year found that to be the case. Let's give them a round for getting through that gauntlet of that. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. It's hard to say what changes the new administration will bring. President-elect Donald Trump has already pledged to lead the biggest Navy buildup since the Reagan administration. But how will we power all those new ships? When U.S. Naval Secretary Ray Mabus visited Climate One, he had high hopes for curbing the Navy's appetite for fossil fuels with a project called the Great Green Fleet. The Great Green Fleet is a carrier strike group that was involved in the rim of the Pacific exercise, which is the biggest naval exercise in the world every two years. And it was a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, and its screening ships, a cruiser, several destroyers, um, a misnamed oiler. Every surface ship was steaming on a mixture of marine diesel and biofuel. Every type of aircraft that took off from the carrier uh, was flying on a 50-50 mixture of aviation, gasoline, and biofuel. We did it to demonstrate that we can reach both afloat and ashore the Navy's goal that we have set that by no later than 2020, at least half of all Navy energy, both on our ships at sea, our aircraft in the air, uh, and our bases, will come from non-fossil fuel sources. Um, The Department of Defense is the biggest user of fossil fuels in the world. Uh, The U.S. Navy is about a third of that. So we burn... Uh, in the Navy and Marine Corps, about uh, 1% of all fossil fuels burned in the United States every year. We can bring a market. We can make it economical. We can bring the scale to this. That was outgoing U.S. Navy Secretary Ray Mabus speaking at Climate One in 2014. As for the Great Green Fleet, it remains to be seen whether Mabus's successor will continue the program. Now, let's return to our live discussion with Greg Dalton at the Commonwealth Club. Here at Climate One, we're trying to hear more stories from the people up on stage. So, Aaron Cook, I'd like to hear your story of how you came to where you are as the sustainability director at an airport. What's been your life path that brought you to this right now? Um, It started when there was a housing development that I tied myself to a tree to, to um, stop it from happening. I guess I've always been an environmentalist, so I've always had that environmental ethic, largely because, you know, my parents were um, certainly uh, hippies of the 60s and um, really instilled the love of nature and environment for me. So um, I've always actually worked for climate-impacted industries, so have an undergrad degree in natural resource science and business management and wanted to combine them into a recreation field, and it was around the time that the natural um, National Skiers Association announced their Sustainable Slopes Charter, so wanted to go and um, put that in place for a ski area. Um, I did that for a little bit, worked for an environmental nonprofit 
nonprofit in Boston, um, actually as part of an insurance agency that was one of the first to offer a mileage-based insurance product, recognizing that people that drive less should cost less to insure. They have a lower risk profile. Um, made my way to Cupertino, California as their first sustainability manager and then assistant to the city manager and work there on um, in kind of the company town that is Apple, but a wonderful community, incredibly progressive with great values um, oriented around creating their first sustainability plan, climate action plan, doing greenhouse gas emissions inventorying, and this opportunity to join SFO's teams um, arose. They were hiring their first sustainability director to lo- work on really matrixing environment across the organization and helping them achieve what they were calling initially their BHAGs, their big, hairy, audacious goals, mm-hmm. um, kind of the moonshots um, for SFO of getting to the goals I mentioned earlier, so carbon neutrality, zero net energy, zero solid waste. Um, and it seemed like an incredible opportunity to contribute to an organization that had a really strong environmental ethic and commitment to climate change and had for quite some time, um, has been awarded for a variety of things, but also stay part um, of and as serve being a, yeah, being a public servant. Jim Missius, how did you come to running a, a bioenergy startup in the East Bay? Well, Fulcrum's the third company that I worked for. It was 20 years with a utility, uh, started as a plant engineer and then became a senior officer for, for operations. And utilities are not known for innovation and creativity and mm-hmm. very focused on not making a mistake. I left them and became a senior uh, officer with an independent power producer that went, that had the most rapid, advanced, fastest growing uh, business in in the power industry. And even though it was a large company, it was still run by its founder. It was a very innovative creator, creative. So I went from an environment where the focus is not making a mistake to not missing an opportunity. And so then... I had an opportunity with, to, to, I knew people in private equity that wanted to do something like this. I had friends that were trying to talk me into doing it. So opportunity to start the company, just myself, with some funds from private equity and a chance to run it yourself and mm-hmm. do it yourself and do it how you'd want to do it. And that's how I got started. Yeah, not many utility executives go in to become <laughs> entrepreneurs, right? Um, Sean Newsom, how did you get to your path at being the, one of the green guys at Boeing? Well, I'm an aviation geek from way back. I grew up in the Seattle area, and Boeing was always there, and I loved airplanes. Uh, My first job working for Boeing was on the first environmental issue for airplanes, noise. So airport noise, airplane noise is where I spent the first years of my Boeing career at. And opportunity came around several years later to get involved in broader environmental uh, topics, and here I am. And uh, Annie, how did you get to, to Environmental Defense Fund, to this international area, well, chasing down, chasing down planes and pilots? Not me, not pilots. <laughs> <laughs> Think of a really blue sky day. Imagine it in your mind. I went to school in Colorado Springs. I went to college there. And the town used to boast that it had 310 sunny days a year. <laughs> But many of those sunny days turned cloudy by the end of the day. And so my college class decided to take some time-lapse photography of the city of Colorado Springs. We started at dawn. We took a picture. Fifteen minutes later, we took another picture. Fifteen minutes later, another picture, all the way through to sunset. That movie, we ran backwards. Sunset was gorgeous, orange, orange cloudy sky. 
As it rolled toward afternoon, the sky was gray. As it rolled toward midday, the solid gray sky broke up into bands of clouds. By morning, those clouds turned into strings. And by early morning, those strings disappeared into the back of airplanes. Mm. That got me wondering. Wow. So an actual experience of the clean, clean skies. We're going to get toward audience questions, but I want to circle back to... You know, working on climate, you've all shared your story. You're working on various areas, very hopeful areas of, of climate. The last week or so has been pretty rough for people who are concerned about the climate. Uh, so Aaron Cook, I want to tell me about learning about uh, the change of the election and having a person who current, right now denies climate change in the White House. What was the emotional reaction and how have you been keeping yourself going? What I will share on stage is that (laughs) I'm a mother, and so that requires you to be optimistic, I would say, on all parts, whether it's getting through sleep deprivation or overcoming political challenges um, or seeing the opportunities in the light through all of those things. So um, interestingly enough that while the election was happening, I was in San Diego meeting with the California Airports Council. And so I think there was a great um, light of hope in meeting with my colleagues from other airports throughout California, where um, we really are leading the nation in terms of commitment to climate change, uh, mitigation, adaptation, and resilience. So just the story shares that we were having um, and all coming together and recognizing that we were sharing best practices of the way that we're deploying you know, great infrastructure projects at our airports. Um, SFO is in the middle of a $6 billion capital plan. That full plan deploy- deployment will be under a lead gold um, hierarchy using version four, which really focuses on indoor air quality and human health components. So um, just talking to each and every one of them, I think we um, are becoming increasingly optimistic for a variety of reasons. I think two also, um, or sorry, one initially being that we know that Trump is a builder, right? I mean, his platform was about building bridges, which we hope will include physical bridges as well as potentially jet bridges um, or bridges at our airports, right? And we also know that he's driven and motivated um, by economic performance. And so we recognize that um, in California, we've been able to show great opportunity through investment in green, green, clean jobs, um, that those are incredible workforce pathways and opportunities for real high quality jobs. Um, So making the business case for that. And then also recognizing what I said earlier around business continuity and the risk that comes from not addressing the insurance flood risk and potential, um, potential impacts that climate change really does bring to our country and our, our country's infrastructure that he wants to reinforce through the projects and investment um, under his um, administration. Annie Petsonk, what was your reaction? And do you know some people, do you have family members who were, who were Trump supporters? I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from a town that has been hollowed out economically. We used to have manufacturing in our town. We used to have railroads. We used to build railroad cars. Um, I'm committed to trying to get jobs in my hometown. In the part of Pennsylvania where I'm from, the rising industry right now is heroin. We can't go on that way. Fighting climate change can generate new technologies. My dad was an engineer. He helped design the reversing propeller for the blimp. (laughs) One of his uh, Boy Scouts in the scout troop that he was the scoutmaster of designed and invented 
lightning arresters that are on every airplane now. They take, if lightning strikes the plane, these lightning arresters dissipate the charge. The aviation industry is a cornucopia of technology innovation. And by starting with aviation as a, uh, as a, a template for tackling climate change, I think we can generate technologies that can put people in towns like my hometown back to work, making those uh, uh, aircraft components and technology components, whether it's for air traffic control systems or the aircraft themselves, or for innovations that spin off of those and can be used in other sectors, like electrical power plants, other sectors. We can do it, and we need to do it. We need to do it to protect the climate and to put people back to work. Mm -hmm. Annie Petsonk is with the Environmental Defense Fund. Jim Macias, did you ever have a lump in your stomach thinking about, uh-oh, this could be a big change that could affect me, my family, my company? Uh, no. Um, when, you, when, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're running a business, administrations come and go, presidents come and go. You can't run a business that has a strategy that's focused on a certain government direction or policy. You deal with uncertainties all the time. Across the business. This is just another uncertainty you want to do. But what has me the confidence is the driver that's driving this, like, like the agreement that was reached in the aviation industry, that was voluntary. That was not government-driven. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the automobile mm-hmm. industry where it was government-mandated and now the car industry may be looking to, 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 to change it. This was driven by the, the airlines because the paying customers, in their views, it's, it, they want to see it. It's needed. So this is public-driven. It's, it's, it's not government-driven. And so there will be some impact, plus or minus. Um, uh, but in the, in the scheme of things, it is just more. Either um, uh, uh, wind in your face or wind in your, wind in your back. It's just more things you have to deal with as a company. Sean Newsom, tell us about your emotional ups and downs these last weeks, as you've, last week or so. Uh, the election surprise. You're a parent also. Yeah, certainly I was surprised. Um, I'm a big follower of Nate Silver's 538 blog and for, for really the last two or three election cycles. And so I've been, I've been tracking the probability for, for months. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, I think prior to the election, it was like a 65% Clinton win. It's like, okay, so two to one. Um, those are pretty good odds. Um, and so when it, when, it, when it didn't come out that way, I, there was a, certainly a lot of surprise on my part just from a pure, I'm a data geek, analyst kind of guy. <laughs> But as, as Jim said, um, you know, big picture wise, we build airplanes that last 25 years. Um, we're, we, we're looking ahead towards 2050 as, as our, envir- our key environmental goal, reducing our emissions as an industry by 50% by, by 2050. Um, and, you know, within that kind of framework, within that kind of context, and looking at, at this on an international basis, the, the things that, that Annie and I have been talking about here today and we've been talking about for years now, um, they're an international agreement. They're not, they're not reliant on any one country. The U.S. Is a, is a significant country in that, but it's not the only country. And so in, in the whole context of things, yeah, this will have some temporal impact. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but we're focused on the long term and some, some bigger goals and some bigger issues. Sean Newsom is Director of Environmental Strategy at Boeing. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions at Climate One. Yes, welcome. Hey, uh, I'm Tobias Schultz. I work for SCS Global Services, which is an environmental consulting and certification firm. Now, Annie, you mentioned the controversy about 
some types of biofuels, which we're very, very familiar with. And you mentioned that there's a uh, that you're actually doing some work on that. Could you talk about what you see as the keys to ensuring that the biofuels that are going to be used are good for the climate and not, in fact, uh, bad for the climate? Any pencil? Because we went through a whole chapter with cars where they yeah, put corn in, it's good. Oh, corn not so good. Okay, right? How, is that going to happen in in planes? First, uh, there there's been a mythology that because crops take carbon out of the atmosphere to grow, then when you burn them in a car or an airplane, that's carbon neutral. But that's really an error in accounting. Because when you burn them in a car or an airplane, the carbon dioxide comes out the back of the tailpipe and goes up into the atmosphere. The question is, what was going on on the land where you got those crops from? If you can increase the carbon storage on the land compared to what you were doing on the land before, then you might be able to produce those biofuels in a way that actually does benefit the atmosphere. But that requires looking at what's going on in that land and what's going on on neighboring lands as well. It's controversial. Some people don't want the neighboring lands looked at as well, and various countries in the in the uh, uh, negotiations over these standards have their own views on it. We're committed to trying to get that full accounting over the entire life cycle. In addition, there are concerns about the sustainability from an ecosystem perspective and from a social perspective. Um, If the place where you're getting your uh, biofuels from happens to be in the middle of a pristine ecosystem where the animals who live there are going to be displaced, that's a big concern. And so there's a grouping of NGOs who are working with governments who are also concerned about it to try to get these standards. When will we get it done? Uh, not this year and not next year, but maybe the year after. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thanks. My name's James Lowen. Uh, just curious to hear a little bit about some technical discussion or economics discussion about some other ways and the question is, is biofuels the only game in town with respect to carbon-free flying? Uh, we, batteries were mentioned. Mm-hmm. What about, um, are, are batteries f- feasible? What about uh, hydrogen going into fuel cells? And so hydrogen created in a uh, carbon-free manner uh, going into fuel cells, for example. Sean Newsom. So the, the, the challenge here really all comes down to energy density. So how much oomph can you put into a to a given volume. Um, you know, in today's airplanes, the, the energy, the fuel, is, is in the wings. All of these other technologies have significantly lower energy density than liquid fuels. Um, jet fuel is, is remarkably energy dense, as are most liquid fuels. Um, hydrogen, liquefied natural gas, um, battery power, solar power, they, they all lack that energy density at this point. Um, Battery is on a, on a unique um, technology trajectory. It may get there sometime, um, but right now the, the energy density comparison between battery power and, and a liquid jet fuel is about 20 to 1. So you've got to overcome that 20 to 1 ratio to get to the same level of capability we have today. Fossil fuels had millions of years to pack it in there. Let's go to our next question. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Mazier Zianali. Um, I'd like to take us back to the title of the talk and ask a, a, an umbrella question um, in terms of what a Trump presidency would mean to aviation. 
and I think the panelists alluded to this, there, there's going to be a short-term impact and the long-term impact. Um, and, I, and I think the way aviation mitigates the long-term impact is really having a good short-term answer. Um, for example, the, the short-term problem for civil society is how do you sell an aviation deal that even internally there are some doubts that it could have an impact? How does an industry uh, sell its commitment to climate change when you have a life cycle of 25-plus years for aircraft? You know, once you finish this next generation that I think it's a great move forward for Boeing, there's going to be a lull for about 25 years. What do you do in that time frame? In terms of biofuels, the elephant in the room is really automobiles and ships. In terms of redirecting fuels to aviation, uh, you've got a bigger player and a bigger supply that's needed for other modes of transportation that will really fight aviation for biofuels. And in terms of airports, demand growth and keeping up demand is going to be the bigger challenge that airlines are going to want you to answer first before you answer your climate um, commitment. So in terms of all of those, in terms of having the right short-term answer to really mitigate a Mr. A President-elect Trump four years, uh, you really have to have those answers. And I'd like to know what the panelists think. Let's tackle those quickly, and we'll get to the next question. Jim Macias? Well, um, I mean, I, I can't speak for him. I haven't talked to him, but... But he has expressed very, he's, he's very pro-economy uh, and growing the economy. I have a hard time seeing getting in the way of where the airlines are going what they're trying to do with improving efficiency and improving operations. So um, I, I, I think I, he's going to be focused on, on a lot of the, uh, all of the above energy strategy and looking to free up some of the regulations for drilling on gas, but I don't see them getting in the way of uh, what the aviation industry is doing and, and um, with efficiency and agreements and uh, with biofuels. May not promote it, but may not st- slow it down. John Newsom? You know, our, our, that very issue is why we tumbled towards supporting a market-based measures, a global carbon offset program. We saw that as the gap fill or the, the short-term solution to um, essentially level out our industry-wide CO2 emissions. We, we've, we look at this as a portfolio approach. We want to continue to make more efficient airplanes. We want to operate those more efficiently. We want to do biofuels to make a substantial reduction in the CO2 emissions profile. But before all those things come together, we, we look at this carbon offset program as a means to provide that more immediate response to, to reducing our emissions. We're going to go to the next question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Craig Wildman. Uh, my question is on biofuels for commercial aviation. So what does it take to qualify a new biofuel uh, for use? Uh, for, do, do you need a perfect drop-in fuel? And if so, do you then have to have some, some long testing procedure? Or are you flexible with the chemistry of the fuel? And can we, run on French, can we fly on French fry grease, Jim Macias? <laughs> well, um, the aviation industry with... Uh, with Boeing's leadership and, and help, has already stand, established the standard, the STM standard, for biofuel for, for, for aviation. And, and it's been through engine testing and um, uh, uh, all the certification process and documentation. So it's well known. So the standard, the pathway there for companies like ours is already there. 
We just, you just have to follow that, and you have to follow the certification and the rules and the criteria. It is a drop-in fuel that gets blended directly with, uh, with, 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 with fossil fuels. Jim Macias, tell us briefly, you're about to build your first plant. Uh, how much fuel are you going to make? Why are you doing it in California? It's an expensive place to do business. Are you doing it here because of the laws? Are you doing it here because you like the golf courses? Why are you doing it? <laughs> Well, we're headquartered in, in California, just here in the Bay, Bay Area. That's because that's, I started the company. That's where I live, so why not start it? It's where you play golf. Right, okay. Right, All right. right there. But our, first, but our first plant is not in California. Our first plant is in, we're constructing it right now in Reno. And a lot of people ask, ask why. We're in, in, in California and elsewhere, if, if you're putting in a, a power plant, the rules for permitting and constructing a power plant are well known. For putting in a refinery, rules and regulations for permitting and constructing a refinery are well known. You want to do a landfill; those are those are well known. But what are we? We're kind of in between. So when you talk to people, it's it's not real clear. In California, you talk to regulators. Well, I don't know. We'll have to figure this out. File your permits, and then we'll figure it out. And we'll see what's going on. Other states in the country, the the regulations aren't any left less. You still have to have the same air emission. Uh, regulations, the same water use, but but in Nevada they were clearer, um, and it's very difficult to make a 250 million dollar investment in these these plants. These are these are bio mini refineries, with those kind of rules, uncertainty that you'll figure out as you go. So uh, we're building it in Nevada. We're going to we're, we're trucking the fuel uh, here into to, to SFO. We're going to wrap up. It's uh, for people who want to have some hope and know what an individual uh, person can do uh, in this space. Aaron Clark, what can an average flyer traveler do who is concerned about climate other than not get an air- airplane, I suppose? But, um. <laughs> um, take BART and air- or Airtran to access the, the airport. Um, our airport has reduced emissions by 38% off of a 1990 baseline. So I don't want to put in a plug for SFO, but flying through SFO certainly helps um, mitigate your carbon impact of transportation. Oh, take that, um, Oakland. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, certainly reach out and write to the airports if you see opportunities for improvement. I think we all are in a very kind of co-opted space and we want to compete with one another, recognizing that we're all competing for towards the same um, passengers, but there are tons of growth opportunities. So certainly feel free to reach out and give us some um, recommendations for improvement. Jim Macias, what can an average flyer do? What can an average person do to reduce, uh, tackle climate change? Well, I think still being, being an educated, smart, demanding customer, that's what's driving the change in the aviation industry. And I'd say keep, keep, it, keep it up. Ask your traveling about climate, about offsets, perhaps. Yeah, Sean Newsom. Um, make smart choices. Um, travel w- when you want to go, where you want to go, but make smart choices about when you, when you do that. Um, when you're asked by somebody in the industry what's important to you, tell them that sustainability counts. Any pets on? Last word. Don't hesitate to tell them that sustainability counts, especially if they are the CEO of an airline or the incoming CEO of the nation. (laughs) Um, 
That, we have to wrap it up there. We've been talking about sustainability and, and flying with Aaron Cook, sustainability director at SFO, Jim Macias, CEO of Fulcrum Bioenergy, Sean Newsom, director of environmental strategy at Boeing, and Annie Petsonk, international counsel with the Inter- Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to a podcast of this at climateone.org. I encourage you to subscribe to that podcast, and I'd like to thank our audience here in the room at the Commonwealth Club and online and on air. Thank you all for joining us. Thank these, these great guests. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.